Today is the fourth day of our winter, winter 2022 seven-day session. And it's the, uh, the 19th of July. Um, before we move to our, our new text, um, just to correct that the, the, um, the number of times I gave yesterday from, from Dogen's NG for um, how many times the reality is created and destroyed, it is 6,400,099,980, which works out at roughly 70,000 times a second. Just to set the record straight on that, if you were wondering. Now we're going to take up um, a chapter from Silent Illumination by Guo Gu, Chan Buddhist Path to Natural Awakening. Um, Guo Gu is a, a Dharma heir of, of Master Sheng Yin, who we quoted from yesterday. And there's a little bit of information about him in the back of the book. Um, Guo Gu is a Chan teacher, author, and Buddhist scholar. He is founder of the Tallahassee Chan Zen Center, Chan Center in Florida and of the socially engaged interdenominational Buddhist organization Dharma Relief. As one of the few teachers carrying on the living wisdom of Chan Buddhism in the West and as the trainer of all Western Dharma teachers in the Dharma drum lineage of Master Sheng Yin, Guo Gu has a unique ability to bring profound Buddhist doctrines to life th through concrete methods of practice. He's, and he's a very fine writer as well. And he leads um, uh, multi-day intensive Rachan reads in a, a number of different countries or has in the past. Guogu first learned meditation as a child in 1972 with Master Gang Chin, 1892-1986, one of the most respected Chinese meditation masters and ascetics in Taiwan. In 1980, Guogu moved to the United States and began studying with Master Sheng Yin. In 1991, he was ordained as a monk and became Master Sheng Yin's first personal attendant and assistant. In 1995, he experienced his first breakthrough and was given permission to teach Chan independently, representing Zen Master, representing Master Sheng Yin at his home monastery and in different parts of the world. He, his subsequent experiences of Chan were also recognized by other teachers in both the Chan and Japanese Zen traditions. Wanting to bring Buddhism Beyond monastic worlds, Guogu left monkhood and re-entered the world in 2000. In 2008, he received his PhD in Buddhist studies from Princeton University and began teaching as a professor of Buddhist studies at Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida. It goes on to mention um, the many books that he's um, published um, in English of which is, this is the latest. And it says of this book, um, Silent Illumination, A Chan Buddhist Path to Natural Awakening, 
offers instructions and translations of the writings of Hongzhi, the founder of one of the most important methods of Chan practice, silent illumination. Guogu teaches that Chan wisdom is compassion in action. Responding to the early weeks of the coronavirus pandemic, his non-profit organization, Dharma Relief, reformed formed partnerships across separate Buddhist organizations and volunteers to fundraise, purchase and distribute over one million surgical face masks to frontline caregivers in North America, healthcare workers. So this book has, has come out since the pandemic began. And it reminds us of the of the disarray that was that was the response to the early early um, pandemic situation. But anyway, that's a little bit on on Guogu. <coughs> and we're going to take up a chapter in the book called "Caveats and Pitfalls." Um, there's some interesting. Uh, overlaps between this and uh, what we were reading the first three days of the session. Many experiences, both pleasurable and not so pleasurable, arise in meditation. There are many reasons for this. Sometimes it is the way we live that causes these experiences. Other times it is our internal psychosomatic conditions that give rise to them. When he says the way we live, the, the, he's talking about the, the sorts of habits of mind that we live from in our daily um, lives, which naturally are still active when we come into a meditation hall, Zendo. And then we may also have um, these psychosomatic conditions. In other words, um, the, the condition of our body-mind is uh, going to shape how we experience uh, meditation, especially intensive meditation, such as what we're doing. Our attachments and habits play a big role. It is important to know how to relate to them because a central part of practice is about creating a relationship with ourselves and building a good relationship with the method. Now, in this tradition, they tend to use the term method where we would use practice, but it means the same thing. And uh, this is the same as Darlene Cohen was pointing out, that her book was specifically about, uh, about chronic pain uh, and how, how to work with that and how... Um, the relationship to the pain would be also affected by everything else that we relate to, and hence her her putting forward this notion of accepting everything that 
that comes our way. It continues, through practice our lives become easier, we are happier, we realize how fortunate we are to have come to this path. And I would add, add here, kinder. That's probably the best test of our practice, not how it feels in one sitting or another, but whether we find ourselves slower to anger, quicker to respond to somebody in pain. And, and gratitude is another marker of uh, a developing spiritual practice. We become more aware of, of all that we rely on to, to live and to, to flourish. The way we engage, engage with our method reflects the way we relate to ourselves and others in daily life. We may be the fighting type, and so when we encounter difficulties, we tend to just try to plow through them. Conversely, we may be insecure about ourselves and our abilities, so when we experience difficulties, we give up easily, or when we make progress, we may doubt our accomplishments. We engage in a kind of self-sabotage often. Many of us bring to our practice a whole lifetime of hurt and defensiveness, all of the mechanisms we have developed in order to survive. The way we use our method reveals all of our shortcomings and strengths, inadequacies and resourcefulness. Even though we're originally awakened, we have to work through all of these issues. Below, I discuss a few common issues that arise in meditation. There is no one right way to work with them. I encourage you to explore some of these teachings and see which approach works for you. Really, there's, there's, um, there's only so much that, that teachers can do. They can offer suggestions, um, reassure the students sometimes that what they're experiencing is is normal, okay, part of the process. But ultimately, we each of us have to find our own way with the difficulties that arise. And the, the um, structure of the Sishin, where we, we sit these many hours in stillness, is, is uh, conducive of our having to draw on our own inner resources and uh, our own intuition, intelligence to find a way to, to proceed. The first, his first heading is tension. He says, tension is endemic to modern living. Our jobs are often a source of tension. Tension shapes our thoughts, actions, and choices, which in turn create more tension, 
not only for ourselves but also for those we love. The people closest to us tend to be the ones who get hurt. And he's describing here is, is the way we can get into vicious cycles with tension, where the tension uh, stimulates our, our anxiety and we become anxious also about our anxiety and that can, can sometimes lead to full-blown panic attacks. So we have, to, we have to find a way to break the circuit That's where uh, Zazen comes in, of course. The first step to making our lives easier, as well as the lives of those around us, is to recognize tension and learn to relax. Uh, muscular tensions and, and, and spasms are very much a part of, of Parkinson's disease and so uh, immediately get a very strong motivation to learn better how to skillfully work with tension, how to, how to be uh, accepting it so as to avoid these vicious cycles that we can get into, to not take it personally Gogu says, the best way to relax is to learn to be grounded in the body. Again, echoing Darlene Cohen's teaching. Progressive relaxation is something we can do anywhere. We have to familiarize ourselves with it again and again. We not only practice this way to prime the body and mind for meditation, but also throughout the day. Whether in stillness or activity, this practice will transform the way we live. Now, what he means by progressive relaxation is um, practice. Uh, many of you may have, have heard me suggest uh, at, the, at the beginning of a, of, a, of a block, for instance, of just, if necessary, going through, uh, method methodically going through the body from the top of the head to the toes and just bring your mind to, to different areas of the body and allow them to relax. So it's what we might also label a, a, a body scan. But he's suggesting not only to use this as when we're settling into our practice, but um, also throughout the day. And he says, I teach my, I ask my students to incorporate this practice into their lives five times a day, even if only for a minute each time. I ask them to pick five times to do a progressive relaxation. For instance, every time they walk, are waiting in line somewhere, have the first bite of lunch, get into an elevator, or other specific times of the day. It's, it's very helpful if we're wanting to do something uh, regularly in our day, um, to hitch it to some activity that we, we do, will do anyway, which is just part of our routine. And then it's less likely that we will forget whatever it is we're wanting to do regularly, whether it's, whether it's sitting every day or like here, um, just taking the time to 
to relax the body and the mind. Um, and, and he's talking here about just like a very short time, so not progressively going through every step of that process, which might take uh, 20 minutes or something, but just um, a minute, at a minute's time. What can you do in a minute? Well, you can just take some breaths. You can bring your mind to your breath and and um, experience that. Experience especially the out-breath, a long out-breath. And this, we can, through doing this regularly, we can actually condition ourselves to to it, and so that we, we we might resort to it in a in a tense situation, becomes part of our way of responding. In other words, I ask them to pick five times to fully engage with the task at hand, but to first start by re relaxing from head to toe, to be fully in the body, feeling the skin, muscles and tendons, and then relaxing them. Then they can be fully with the task. The more they do this, the more familiar they become with what it feels like to relax. <coughs> relaxing our body brings the center of gravity down to our feet and makes us grounded. Tensing the body, on the other hand, brings our energy upward and causes us to be in our headspace. We become top-heavy. When the center of gravity is in the head region, we give rise to all sorts of problems like headaches and other physical issues. But the biggest problem with chronic tension is that it tends to make us controlling, activating our greed and aversion. In, in Zen, we tend to emphasize bringing the center, our center of gravity down to the hara, the lower belly region. But then that stability has to be based on, on um, a, a grounded connection with the, the earth and the feet. So they, they work together. He says, he says um, um, that the biggest problem with chronic tension is making us controlling. We can say that, that um, if the body is tight, the mind tends to be tight. Body and mind are not two. These, these habits of, of um, body and mind and how we relate to the world can, can start um, very early on. I had a memory that has come to me before of my mother trying to teach me how to knit. And uh, I knit this, this, the, the wool so tightly that I couldn't even get the needle in to take the next stitch at a certain point. So that was when I gave up on knitting. He continues, tension 
if left, left unchecked in meditation, influences the way we try to control the method. But we should not contrive when using a method. We allow the method to simply be present. The various practices I have discussed above lead to effortlessness and open awareness. By practicing in this way, we are staying with the reality of this present moment, free from the prison of old habits and erroneous views. Now this book is a book mainly about silent illumination, which is the, the Chinese um, source for our practice of shikantaza. But uh, we can apply it more broadly than that, that um, we're, we're in all of the practice, whether it's the breath or a koan or shikantaza, we are um, doing our best to stay with the reality of this present moment in different, in slightly, slightly different flavors to the way that we do that. But that's, that's what it's all about, being present. Letting go of, of the past and our, our judgments and memories of it. Not uh, getting into our worries and, and thoughts about the future either, but staying present. And even in the present, to be, to be freeing, freeing up our mind from um, habits and, and erroneous views, as, as Guogu puts it. He says, there's a special word in Chan for our controlling tendencies. It's called Guandai in Chinese. The character guan means control, but has the nuance of contrived effort. In modern usage, guan also means management. The character dai means to bind or to tie around, as in being tethered to something. The significance of this is that as soon as we try to control something, fixate on it, or make a contri contrived effort, we are tethered by it. Why? Because we are going against the way things are, which is fluid and dynamic. If, for example, we have an emotion and try to manage it by telling ourselves, don't think or feel that way, substitute this thought with that, then we will probably end up feeling worse because we are setting up an opposition and placing ourselves in a situation of conflict. Now, I could just say here that um, replacing one thought by another uh, for instance, an angry thought by a loving one, is a respected practice in Buddhism, but it's not what we're doing. It's not, it's not Zen, it's not Chan. And it's, it's important to, to understand here that um, all the different practices are, are skillful means. They're, they're upaya, um, things that can work. Um, but certain kinds of practice work for, for some of us and others for other people. And it's, so it's, there, there are said to be 84,000 different practices in the Dharma because of the different kinds of people there are.
But in, in Zen, we don't try and substitute one thought for another. But just to um, leave the thought alone, let it be. See through it. See that it is fundamentally uh, insubstantial. He says, when we approach silent illumination by grounding the body, we're simply experiencing being here. What do I mean? We are aware of the act of sitting. How can we be aware that we are sitting here right now? There is a sensation of sitting, the presence of the body, the posture, the bodily weight of being here. We just relax into being here. Then all of these sensations are just present. If we reduce the present awareness to the simplest thing, the basic reality that there is a hunk of flesh and bones here, then this body and mind become inseparable from experiencing. Don't imagine that there is a body observing, there is a mind observing the body like a corpse. This is not how to do it. The mind and body are here, together, inseparable. Their presence is effortless, non-controlling. This is a, a very um, clear and succinct description of uh, Shikantaza. Just experiencing ourselves sitting. Dropping the idea of a mind that observes the body, that's a construct, it's a mental construct that we, we make. How can we um, let that go. It's a fiction. The, the fiction is the fundamental fiction that, that causes all our afflictions, actually. This, this notion of being a subject opposed to objects. The mind and the body are here together, inseparable. Their presence is effortless and non-controlling. The same is true of life. Anyone may behave in a respectful, disrespectful or dismissive way toward us. We just experience the feeling of pain, the hurt or unpleasantness. Even though it is our habit tendency to instantly solidify the feeling and make it into a thing, we should simply allow it to be present without reacting to it, or even worse, allowing it to define us. If we make it into a thing, we separate ourselves from it and naturally oppose it. Self and other become solidified. This is the basis of suffering. Embracing the pain, we don't contemn either ourselves or the other person. We experience it as a human feeling a natural human feeling that tells us something about ourselves. Then we can work with it and be in a better situation to respond and change the situation. If we're grounded, we notice things more. We see what underlies our feeling of hurt, what we are grasping at. Our need to control things can be seen in our relationships. 
For example, a parent-child relationship. Parents often feel the need to control their kids. They provide what is needed and children either take advantage of the opportunities they're being offered or they don't. If parents blame themselves for not teaching their children to take these opportunities, then they're creating unnecessary frustrations. We need to be able to learn the difference between our choices and our children's. We need to see the workings of causes and conditions. Each of us is merely one factor in the midst of all the complex workings of causes and conditions. We each have our own lives and karma, which we need to experience for ourselves. From our perspective, the choices our children make may not be so good, but that is only our perspective. Maybe they need to experience something challenging in order to rise above it. When our kids become teenagers, it's best for us to relate to them as friends instead of parents. We let them experience things ourselves, but we're always here to support them when they need us. We try our best not to reject our own opinions. We try our best not to inject our own opinions into their lives. I think this example of how we relate to our children uh, is a good one in seeing how the, the practice carries through into our into our regular lives. That if we are if we are able to accept and and appreciate um, the widest possible range of our own thoughts and feelings, then we will be more able to do the same with our children. And that will be a wonderful gift to them if they know they can, they can come and share their deepest fears and, and concerns <coughs> with the parent. And not, and not get a, you know, a um, negative reaction or, or not be heard fully. and not to have our opinions stuffed down their throats. The need to control is often seen in other kinds of relationships, such as romantic relationships. Very often, people expect their partners to make them feel better or to take the pain away. They, they hang on to the partner, feeling that they can't live without them. You're my world, they say, or you're my everything. Their whole lives revolve around that person. This not only puts a lot of stress on the partner, but at the same time it is a form of, of denial of self because the person is defined through, through and objectivized the other as the source of happiness. Those relationships typically don't last because they're based on control and submission. And so of course, such, such expectations are setting oneself up for, for uh, disappointment and pain. Control never works in relationships. It's the same with practice. 
because practice is a form of relationship. How we live our lives is replicated in how we practice. Some people, including teachers, practice with the aim of controlling their minds to be clear at all times. Moment to moment, they pay attention to every action, noting every detail, walking around like zombies, thinking that this is mindfulness. They suppress their feelings and end up being lifeless and rigid. If we practice in this way, we perpetuate our tendency to control. This is just grasping and rejecting, the root of which is greed and aversion. Paradoxically, the more we strive in our practice, the more frustrated we get. And again, this is e echoing um, Darlene Cohen. The more we strive in our practice, the more frustrated we, would get, we get. Sometimes it really is important to let up, to not try so hard. In practice, our awareness should not be intense, but effortless, uncontrived, our sense faculties open so they can do what they normally do while still being anchored in the body. Hearing sounds and seeing forms, we are grounded in the body without dwelling on any particular part of it. Various things may be perceived, but they're not, we're not swayed by them. Our experiencing is effortless, because we are not trying to control the mind. I think with, with, um, with really both the breath and koan work, we can get into states where, um, where we become more concentrated on the breath or the koan and other s sensory stimuli uh, recede. But that's, that's not in itself a particular... Um, state to aim for, but happens when we 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 get more absorbed in the question or in the breath. As as she, as he puts it here, um, our experiencing is effortless because we're not trying to control the mind. We're not trying to go in a certain in direction. This applies to all the practices. If you are the anxious or greedy type, you might think this is not enough. Your mind will jump around from here to there, seeking a better method. Being restless, you will come up with all kinds of ideas. I'll check if my posture is correct. Maybe it's better if I use another method. Then I'll be able to get back to a good experience I had on the last retreat. Or maybe I'm not relaxed enough. Maybe I'm not using the method correctly. Or um, another one can be I, I'm not breathing properly. And we, we, of course when we, when we too self-consciously focus on the breath, it's likely to become um, 
more uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's helpful to remember that when doing breath practice, our job is not to breathe in a certain way, but to keep one's awareness of the breath, however it comes. Sometimes it'll feel rough, sometimes it'll feel too shallow, sometimes it'll feel agitated in some way. But however, however it is, just to bring our awareness to it without interference. Sometimes, on account of controlling habits, we develop a very subtle kind of grasping, wherein we start holding our focus on a particular aspect of our sitting, perhaps a particular location in the body. Our focus is so constant that there comes a point where the rest of the body disappears. But unlike the natural disappearance of the body, which leaves us open and wakeful, in open, wakeful experiencing, this controlled concentration on a body part is something fabricated by the mind. That is, the object of meditation becomes static and unchanging, as opposed to vivid and dynamic. The mind has actually left its experience of the present moment and has slipped into sustaining a mental image of sitting or whatever we're fixating on. The, the original method is gone. If we are fixating our mind on an object, on a concept, then we need to expose what's happening and return to the method. It is simple to do this, but we must do it and be careful, especially if we are the controlling type. Otherwise, we just are just perpetuating our grasping. Not controlling means we're relaxed, nonchalant about the method. We are content and at the same time interested in the method. There's a, there's a bit of a parallel here with koan work. It's slightly different, but um, when we, th we think we have to somehow subdue the koan, we have to kind of wrestle it to the floor, get it to conform to our ideas about how it should be. Um, and this is, this is uh, completely at odds uh, with what we're trying to do. Rather, we, we uh, need to just maintain our interest in the koan. Because to, to, when we're interested, when we, we're questioning, then we're open. There is this, this vivid awareness that, that flows. Imagine holding a gemstone in the palm of your hand. You don't lose sight of it. It's there, but you don't have to grip it tightly, fixating your gaze on it. You just let it rest effortlessly in your palm. Your awareness is resting on the gemstone, but not to the exclusion of everything else that is going on around you. 
You don't try to suppress other sounds in the room or other things that you see. It's just that your interest is resting on the gemstone in your palm. You can use the method like this. The method brings us to the freshness of the present moment. Being with the present moment means not getting caught up with what we think it is, but with, or with, with what we want it to be or to make it out to be. We are just experiencing the method right now, right here. Then mind, body and the present moment become one, unified. Being with the present moment means not getting caught up with what we think it is. Somebody gave me a t-shirt a few years back and it had a, a picture like on a traffic sign of, of somebody sitting meditation and underneath it said, meditation, it's not what you think. time for I think one more little section um, this this one is on physical pain when we're doing a seated meditation practice we need to acclimate the body gradually to the meditation posture there are several postures but no matter which one we use if we engage in sustained practice long enough physical discomfort will eventually arise, inevitably arise. There are several ways to deal with pain during meditation. The first thing to do is to relax. We must learn to relax the body, breathe naturally, and allow our minds to align with the right attitude so we can be clear. When we experience physical discomfort, it is usually in one area of the body, perhaps a knee or ankle. Maybe we feel pain in two areas, but really more. Examining this experience closely, we can recognize that each painful area is different. The sensations we are having in the quality of our discomfort are changing constantly. If we label it all as pain, we are obfuscating the experience, applying a common label to a number of different sensations and thus shortchanging ourselves and our ability to apply our full awareness to them. Not only that, when we use the label play, pain, we become more agitated. If we say to ourselves, I'm having discomfort and it might get to the point where I can't stand it because we've only just started the sitting period, then we are already lost in our heads. Usually the reality is that there are sensations in only one part of the body that are attracting our attention. Some, somebody, I'm not sure if I mentioned this yesterday, but um, somebody once said, uh, pain is inevitable, suffering is, is uh, optional. In other words, what we add, the stories, the commentaries we tell ourselves about the pain. And of course, they're, they're stories that immediately um, 
lead us to, to tense up and, and exacerbate the pain. We need to pay close attention to our posture since a bad posture might be a contributing factor. If the pain is overwhelming, we might need to change our posture. In one sense, if we have gotten to that point, it's already too late. The sensation of pain is not cerebral anymore. Stress hormones are flooding the body. We've got into a fight or flight mode, and since our bodies are tensing up around the pain, our attitude solidifies as aversion. Instead of letting this happen, we must change the, pop the posture. Take, it, take a different, give yourself a break. If you need to, if, you, if your one position is really uh, painful, find another position so at least you can, you can um, let up on that. We, we, in our sessions, we encourage people to, to um, sit out the, to the end of the round before changing, changing the posture. Because often if you start to move during the round, you, you, you change, it a little, change your posture a little bit and within a few minutes you're, you're, uh, the pain has just shifted and come back. So if we can avoid moving during, the, during a round, that's preferable. But if you, if you do get a, a really sharp shooting pain, say cramp in your feet, which can happen, then um, it's okay to move. But move carefully, quietly as possible, as discreetly as possible. Well, we'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number, I vow to liberate endless 